My guest this week needs no introduction. I think we probably have Kath Kidston in every single home of every single person listening. It's the queen of print herself on Conversations of Inspiration. We spoke about the early days of building her quintessentially English brand and her serving tea as her customers waited outside her first shop, the adversity that Kath has faced throughout her life, the loss of her parents, her cancer journey, and then all the way through to the moments that we don't talk about, the highs and lows in businesses, the difficulty in growing a brand and yet the beauty at the same time, the decisions that we have to make that we know we have to make, but don't make them any easier. Today, we really uncover the woman behind that brand, a sweet woman, a kind woman, someone who has product and print in her bloodstream. You can hear it. I just love talking to people where even though they should be sitting, sipping something cool somewhere hot, she's doing it all again with C. Athelie her new brand that I'm so excited to bring to you today. I think you're all going to be big fans. I am already. Enjoy, sit back and listen to the beautiful voice of Kath Kidston. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Kath. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. It is an honour to be speaking to you today. You are a nation's queen of prints and you've been spreading joy and optimism across the country beyond your colourful and iconic creations since the 1990s. You're wearing a bright, beautiful jumper today and a gorgeous smile. And I just cannot wait to hear firsthand your story. Welcome to the show, Kath. Holly, thank you so much for inviting me on. A real pleasure to be here. It completely is my pleasure. I just said we met, well, we think many moons ago, around 10 years ago, and lots has happened since. But I wanted to start this podcast, as I always do, if I can go back to the little Kath and actually ask you about your childhood, because you grew up in Hampshire. You were one of four children. Now, it sounds like a very happy and settled childhood. I love that you loved playing house and shops because I did as well. I always wanted to be a shopkeeper. Tell me about this time in your life. You're right. I've always loved playing shop, even since I was a small child. I was brought up, my elder sister and I are quite close in age, and my younger brothers, there was a gap. So it was, in a sense, two batches of children. So my sister and I living in Hampshire, We were quite, we had a lovely time. We lived in wonderful countryside, but we were quite isolated and we were very much thrown outdoors and told to keep ourselves busy all day and come back in, you know, and not too much set up entertainment. So I'd make 
a shop in a laurel bush. I remember there was a certain kind of plant that had round leaves that made money. Oh, brilliant. How convenient. And I've no idea where this shopkeeping habit came from, but it started pretty early on. And then selling my mum's store cupboard back to her and her friends and on it went. But it did begin from an early age, that kind of bartering thing. I love that. And in terms of that sort of childhood and that fantasy land, was that where you were or were you an academic child? I read that you found school not totally easy, but I'm wondering if actually that creativity came through from a young age. I didn't sort of find school difficult or easy. I didn't find it particularly exciting. I didn't go to proper school till I was eight. We went to this woman's house and she taught us lessons. There are about eight of us. And most of what I remember is copying. And I could copy really beautifully, but I'm left-handed. She used to go out the room and do her gardening and leave us copying. And I copied right to left and no one watched till my dad asked me to show him, you know, how's your writing coming on? And he kind of gave a scream when I wrote the wrong way. I mean, I was never diagnosed as dyslexic. But when I started, when my business had kicked off and I started going to talk at schools and do things and I described certain ways I did things or how I learned, people would give me feedback and say, oh, I'm dyslexic too. And I thought, that's weird. I didn't know I was. I get things muddled up like I don't remember numbers particularly, but I can remember colours, colours and prints. I think I've got close to a photographic memory in that department. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because actually, so many interviews I've done on this podcast, either people have been diagnosed dyslexic or haven't been, but actually what they found is that their brain has been working in a different way for a very long period of time. The thing I knew I was bad at was at school. I read very quickly to myself and I like reading books and I'm a fast reader. I cannot read very well aloud. And so say when they pass mm. the shakespeare around, I'd get really nervous yes. when it was heading for me because I couldn't say it with any kind of inclination. I just sounded really wooden. And I can't to this day, if I give a talk or a speech, I either have to ad lib it or I have to do Q&A. I cannot do a speech with the beginning, a middle and an end. And whenever I've tried to do it thinking, I've got to get the better of this and I've really got to crack this one, it's been a disaster. I'm just so bad at doing it. It's interesting, isn't it? These things that we find ourselves doing in our careers, almost like, you know, the school of life, I suppose. And you still think, I've got to crack it. You know, I've still got to crack it. And yet actually, it's almost, you know, we now know ourselves, don't we? We now know ourselves. You either get this or this. It's so true because public speaking, I just thought, I got to a stage where I refused to do anything because I thought it's like acting and I could never do acting. I think for the same reason of not being able to read aloud. I always ran and put my name up for scenery when there was a play, like really fast, scenery please. And I think it's all joined up to the same thing, that I'm not able to do that sort of thing. And anything like when my business got bigger and the management came in and started saying, you've got to do these sort of, you know, where you act out reviews and things. And you have a coach comes in to help you how to develop your team. And you're meant to act out scenarios. Oh, ghastly. And this is my idea of absolute torture because it's like acting. I felt completely fake. 
And I thought it was immaturity in me. And actually, it's just something I'm not able to do. Yeah, absolutely. So you went through um, your schooling and I know that you at 18, you moved to London and you were very young and you did lots of temp jobs at the time and you were trying to work out what it was that you were going to do. I also know that something terrible happened when your father died suddenly from a brain tumour and he was just 50 and you were 19 at the time. And I'm so sorry that you went through that at such a tender age. It must have been earth shattering for you, sort of shaken to your very foundations with everything that you knew at such a young age. How did you get through that time? It was a very difficult time because it was very unexpected. And we were all very close as a family. It was very hard. And he was very young. I also think that age, I mean, it was probably worse for my brothers because they were like 11 and 13 or something. And I was fortunate enough to know my father a little as a semi-adult, but for them, they were so young. And I think back, my mum was in her 40s with four kids. It's very hard, isn't it? But I was in London, as mm. you said. I came up 17, left school, and I was working in shops and doing things and trying to work out. So I went to work for a picture framer for a bit. I worked in various shops. I was quite a good shop girl, so I always knew I could go back to getting jobs in a shop, love rearranging the windows, selling things. So that was my kind of comfort place, if in doubt. And then... Um, it took a while after dad died. So I was 19 and I'd say aged about 23, 24. I carried on with my shop jobs and bits and it's a sort of social time and friends and everything. And you're trying to find my way. I didn't like that age very much. I always had thoughts about starting ideas. Like I remember thinking I was going to make all these Airtex shirts and going and investing in rolls of Airtex and not quite getting it off the ground because I didn't have the confidence and this bolt of Airtex, you know, in the corner of my bedroom thinking, you know, <laughs> what am I going to do with it? And so sort of false attempts and thinking of ideas that never came off. I then got a job working for an antique textile dealer. And that was by chance because a friend had worked there and she was leaving, you know, and I filled in. And that was really interesting, learning about the journey of textiles globally. Mm. And I'd find all these amazing prints on the back of embroidered fabrics from Afghanistan or whatever. So that really got my interest in colour and textile. And then I knew from age about 23, 24, I wanted to get into design. I loved interiors, absolutely loved interiors and everything about it. My granny had had this extraordinary taste and eye. And she had a really lovely house. And she and my dad's side of the family, they were very interested in houses. So so I went to stay with a friend. As well as saying, did you have fun? They'd say, oh, what was the house like? You know, there was, I was learned mm. to be observed in that kind of thing. And so I took ages trying to get a job, which I found hard to do with a good decorator. And then I'd say my whole life changed. I met the decorator, Nikki Haslam. And he was very much a society decorator, no more as much for social as for his taste. And he was the most incredible person. I went to work for him for two weeks and stayed for a few years. And for the first two weeks, I walked his Pekingese or whatever I did. And then we got on incredibly well. And he's someone who I absolutely adore. He is a very, very talented man and very original thinker but very good at delegating to young people. And I'm not the only person who's been through School of Nikki. There's all sorts of people. And he taught me how much fun work was and how enriching it was. And for the first time, someone said, what do you do? I could say what I did, and I was really proud of it. 
And isn't that amazing feeling to talk about work and be really mm. proud? And it gave me confidence in the rest of my life. It was really incredible. And learning so much about color, learning the history of textiles and chintz and things through all those old fabric houses. I'd be going to get the samples, doing everything, and really loved all of that. And so I worked for him for three, four years. And then I kind of got the itch of wanting to start my own business. And I've had an idea, one of my many ideas that used to come up in the bath, you know how they do. I set up a <laughs> business which was, in those days, curtains and window things. There was much more ornate decorating than there is now. People had all these curtains with swags and dales and God knows what poles. The idea of making a shop full of antique vintage curtains, vintage curtain poles, all the old rings. I used to go around buying, you could buy amazing old things then. So it was the most beautiful shop full of antique curtain fittings. And all the decorators came. And then, of course, they wanted three curtain poles, not two. So we began with my, I had a business partner, Shona. And we started making a catalogue and making new things. And I also did my interior decorating. So I would design people's curtains, design their houses, sell the curtain poles. And I did that for about five years. It was a lovely business. I think my friend who took over, I sold my half to her. She's only just sold it now. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was a very good business. And I started Kath Kidston, the idea for that. I sold my stake for not very much money in those days and started Kath Kidston in 1993. And so that's when I had my one shop in Holland Park and a house yes. full of house clearance and car boot things. It was literally filled with vintage treasures. And I called it vintage because there weren't really vintage shops then. It was antique shops and it was house clearance shops, they were called. And I would walk right. past this clearance shop and see all these amazing pieces of furniture that the guy, he'd get like a beautiful white painted cupboard and he'd scratch a bit on the front to show that it was pine underneath so people could buy it and send it off to be stripped and I'd say to him please can I buy things before you scrape the paint <laughs> and I was so I was buying all these you know I thought this is amazing I just got a flat and I didn't have much of a budget I thought this is so incredible you can buy all these amazing one-off vintage pieces it's like if you like buying vintage clothes you know the thing you feel like you're getting couture in a way if you're into it aren't you Yes, yes. So I felt like it was like that for home, you know, that I could, my friends could mix their granny sideboard with a table from the high street, with a painted piece, and then I made things like yeah. cushions, or I made my ironing board covers out of the old fabric. Each week I hand over this part of our podcast to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell are there to support you at every stage of your small business journey. And if you're looking for support on scaling up, then this is the ad break for you. Dell for Startups is a free service that provides startup expertise from dedicated technology advisors and scalable solutions to ensure your business is always ready to grow. So whether you need a personal technology expert on hand server solutions or financing options to allow you to scale your hardware, then head over to dell.com forward slash UK startups. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. So you started the little Kath Kidston 
with her leaves as your coins. You actually now have your shop, but the shop, you sold that part to your friend. So when did you then decide to do it on your own? So I decided before I sold the share of my other business, I sort of began to plan and think about it. And so it probably took me about a year. I had the idea. And you know, when you get an idea and you feel this is it, it completely works. I can see the whole kind of picture of it and how it might be commercialized. And I talked to my accountant about it and made some plans and everything. And then obviously it took a little while. So I had to work out how the best way was to leave my old business, negotiate Mm -hmm. that, build stock, find a lease, do all of those things, set everything up. So it was probably a year, the planning of it all. I did call it to begin with Kath Kidston. And the reason for that was I was dependent on my interior design customers to pay my way and pay my rent because I knew I had income from that. And in those days with no internet, it was all computers were up, but yes. really much online. I needed people to be able to look me up in the phone book. So I named it that. And as the business started to grow, I tried to change the name to something called in-house products. I thought I'd call it in-house and right. by then, I very early on, I began to sell product to Japanese clients and they wanted me to keep the name. And I never imagined with my little corner shop, I think at the peak when I was there and there were lots of franchises in Asia and all kinds of things, there was probably something like 250 shops and I never thought I'd have more than one, you know. So, there, so yes. I think with the name, it's a tricky one, but I never imagined it, you know. And tell me about this. Am I right in researching that you had a happy accident when you started the shop? And this was all about one and a half thousand meters of floral gingham fabric? Yeah, it's so true. I've basically, I sourced, I went on holiday with my sister to Czechoslovakia the summer before I opened the shop. And I bought this really beautiful gingham and rose duvet cover from a local shop. And my curtain maker in England was Czechoslovakian. And we got through the embassy. We found the factory that made it. And I drove from the airport out to them. I went on this long trip to set all this thing up. And then I asked her, she was my translator, could she find out the price of if I made some of the fabric into children's duvet covers and pillowcases, what it would cost. And it was too expensive when they came up with the price. And what happened was when the order arrived, this huge lorry swung round into the tiny street with a pallet. You know, we had not, what do we do with a pallet when you have a tiny shop? And there was all my gingham made into duvet covers and pillowcases. And I thought, what the heck do I do now? I thought I was going to sell it for, you know, meterage for people's curtains and so on. And of course, when something like that happens, it's usually a turning point. And in this case, I made little wash bags, covered coat hangers. I just made as many products as I could out of the duvets and pillowcases. And guess what? That's what all the press loved and that's what all the customers loved. And I'd never imagined moving from, I thought I was going to have this kind of interior design fabric business. I had my rosy wallpaper and this. And then of course it went into a whole different world with these products. And did you just relax and let that happen? I mean, obviously that was a happy accident and Obviously, then people started really enjoying what you had created. You didn't feel the urge to go, oh, hang on a minute. That wasn't what it was all meant to be. No, because I think 
Don't you think all those things, when something terrible happens like that, and it really was quite frightening because I had all my money stuck in the duvets, you know, not much spare cash. Yeah, I can imagine. There's usually a really bad dip. You go home and think, I'm not going to sleep tonight. And you wake up thinking, oh, my goodness, all that stock. What am I going to do? And then when you start to think of an answer, it becomes quite exciting, the whole thing. It's Mm. like problem solving is Mm. like 50% of business, isn't it? And actually, when I look back, most of the rewards I've had from work, it either boils down to rewards of the people and the connections and the energy that's been created through colleagues and so on, or it's been problem solving and getting out of something and feeling, phew, isn't that amazing? I mean, sometimes it's a direct joy, you know, something happens and everything's signed up and that's a really lucky moment. But the rewards are things like what to do with the duvet cover. That's what I'm quite proud of, that I could think my way out of that box. Do you think I would say when you talk about problem solving, for me personally, I would say that's, I mean, it's the hair raising moments, isn't it? And I can imagine you were just thinking, if this doesn't go right, I'm finished before I've even began. But actually, it's that problem solving or having the brain to take that situation and flip it. It's quite exhilarating. And it is why I call the business journey such a roller coaster. It's literally your tummy, you know, literally flipping with excitement and fear in equal measures to not know what the outcome will be. It is some of that, though. I'm not a huge risk taker in a way. I am and I'm not. And I think what's really important with I'm often asked by people who are starting businesses or their businesses are beginning to take off about risk and how to manage it and all of that. And it's such a personal thing, isn't it? I don't have Mm. a really big appetite for it. I want to be able to sleep at night if I can. Otherwise, I just completely can't deal with it. But there's obviously something in me that's prepared to take a certain risk in trying things. Usually, I'm carried through by the power of an idea And feeling confident Mm. and believing in an idea and thinking, if I like that idea as much, maybe one person in a thousand might like it or, you know, whatever. I sort of try and work out some logic. Is that going to commercially be able to keep afloat? Then there definitely are moments where things have become too stressful. So, for example, I sold a stake in Kath Kidston in 2001 because I was starting to get really big decisions to make, like, which partners to go with in Japan and to lock into agreements. And I had Mm. staff I was responsible for and quite a lot of wages to pay then. And it was, you know, major decisions. And I thought, I need help. I definitely need to get some help and get someone in here who's going to be more sensible and work that one out for me more than me. And I think it's sort of knowing actually when we need help as much as when we take risk. And that's a really, really personal thing. I totally agree. I think there's also, when you say that there's a notion that business folk or entrepreneurs or founders or brand creators, such as, you know, that actually everyone must be up for this high level of risk. Maybe it's, I don't know what goes on out there in the media that people just think, I don't know that many good founders that are high risk takers. I think they're almost their instinct will go with an idea and know it will turn out either way, but they're not risking the house literally or people's livelihoods on it. You know, I think sometimes it gets all swallowed up in that sort of dragon's den-y tech Silicon Valley sort of world where that's a different type of entrepreneur, I would say. I agree. But I totally agree with you. But I spent the first, you know, I founded Kath Kidston in 93. 
And for the first five years, I carried on with my interior design business, paying the rent. And it was really mm. hard work because mm. I was doing that in the weekday. But I had one person in the shop helping, but doing the shop, buying the stock at the weekends, going to the car boot sales, prepping the stocks. So it was almost definitely six days a week, sometimes seven. But I needed to do that because I didn't uh, take the risk financially. And then eventually I got really tired. I've been working like crazy. I had breast cancer when I was 37, I think it was, 36, 37. I was very fortunate with that brush with breast cancer, how I came out the other side. But it, those kind of life moments, you know, really, you really mm. think about things. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be really calm here. I'm not going to work so hard. I'm going to just take a step back and change things. And I reckon then I took the risk to only do the Kath Kidston business and stop the decorating because it was physically too much. And I kind of thought, I don't care if I go bankrupt, at least I've tried, but it's too much to do it the other way. So I really had my back against the wall when I made that decision. And it wasn't a very wise way to have behaved. It was just, I survived building the business the way I did. And then I survived by moving it on in a different way. But that again was about the risk factor for me became risk around health rather than financial risk. And health tends to trump finances. And it came to that, but it's quite grim really thinking about it, that it took that to make me realize what I was doing. But I think the most, the most, I so often see this, that people start a business and they have to do everything themselves. They're probably doing their day job. And their new company they're setting up, they're doing a bit of the bookkeeping, they're doing the sales, they're doing this, that, all the rest of it. And then how do they let go of some elements of that and trust people to come in and help them? And it's a very difficult one, isn't it? And working out which bits are the best bits to hand over first and where to take that risk. And quite often people suddenly go, oh, I can't do this anymore. Give half the business away. And they haven't really been thinking. You're like, oh, hold on, stop. Protect yourself a bit before you make that leap. But it is very difficult going from nothing and building into something that translates into a team. How did you, Kath, navigate that from, I was going to touch on your diagnosis of breast cancer. And that must have been, as you said, it was a huge shock and you've made those changes and you put your health first. You understood, I know it took nine years, is that right? To open the next shop, you know, so you weren't racing into things, but then it kicked off, didn't it? I think it was about five years or so. I opened a shop in Chelsea in Elliston Street. And then... ah. I had someone who was going on maternity leave and who was buying stock and they did that sort of stocking up before they went away. And we found we had so much stock. We had to open an outlet store for cash flow. So I took a shop in Fulham, I remember, and then Maribyrn. So I think by the time I did my first sale, I had five shops in 2001. But the first few years, you're right. I think it was more like five or six years. Five years, maybe I had the only one shop. And, you know, going from one to five shops, as you mentioned, you end up, you know, down the journey with over 200. Tell me about those stepping stones for you as a founder. Was it scary to make those, and there were many, so we won't go through them all, but was that scary stepping into the unknown? Was it the team that you built around you that you felt safe to 
you know, go into uncharted waters, places that you'd never made business decisions before about. Tell me about that courage that you had, or was it as scary as it sounds? No, I mean, basically, by the time I got to the five shops and I had these sort of bigger questions to answer, like things I found very difficult were the logistics of something like a warehouse. I -hmm. didn't know how to operate or run a warehouse or how to kind of set that kind of thing up. Finance, I had really good accountants. I was able to get people in to help with all of that. Great salespeople and so on. But it was that sort of, I think, the strategic thing. You know, I was brought up thinking of lots of people who had started business before me were husband and wife teams. You know, Laura Mm -hmm. Ashley and Bernard Ashley, Mary Quant had her husband, Bieber, there was a partner. There are various famous people who I referenced who had a partner And my husband is a musical genius. He's not a business person. And so he was very, very supportive, but he wasn't someone I could make strategic decisions with. And I just thought I need someone who's got that kind of business head on them or a way of interpreting things that can help me with this. So I sold part of the business to bring people in. And the man who came in, very lovely person who's still a great friend of mine, he was an American and worked in American retail. He didn't understand the brand and the way the company worked, I think. And it was probably too much for him diving in. And the first year he was there, it was very stressful because I didn't feel the decisions he were making were going to end up working for the business. And I was right. After a year, the board and everyone decided that was wrong. But where I really lucked out was someone came in as my general manager, Joe Stavely, who's a genius. And she had good retail experience, very, very organized, very creative and organized, but really understood the nitty gritty of the brand. And she stood up to being the CEO at that point. And I found someone who I love working with. And there wasn't a day, I think, all that time I worked with Jo, she was incredible. And she is really is responsible, probably more than me, for building CK. I mean, we did it together, but she was amazing because she could put in place you know, say we need to do something like staff incentive packages. She had the nose to work out something like that, which I would like to do and wanted to do, but I didn't know how to implement. I'm detail. I'm good on detail on something like a print or what the shop window is going to look like or lots of visual detail, but not the paper detail of things. So she was your business husband. (laughs) She was my business husband. She's amazing. And so then that was a very, very good period. And the business was very successful at that time. And the staff, she was great at bringing in a wonderful energy, like staff who knew each other and got on, an amazing kind of camaraderie between everybody and a really good feeling. I think where it was harder for her and for me to understand was as the business grew in Asia, it needed a different focus. I had Mm. an incredible Japanese girl worker in the office who spoke English and she helped us a lot. And a really good team who helped, but it needed probably other skills because that business grew a lot there. We ended up with a partnership with shops in Japan and then Korea, Thailand, Asia was really a big focus. And so when we got to the next exit, where it was sort of venture capital and more serious things, the push was to grow in Asia. And that's where both Joe and I knew that we would never know how to do that. And so people came in. And the fact is, actually, I don't think they knew either. 
when it gets so big, you're like, hold on a minute. Are you sure you know what you're doing? You know, they've all got very good sales guide and everything. And I think when it gets hard is when you get big investors, they obviously want more profit. And if profit drives a business a lot, it can lose its quality and flavor, can't it? You know, if you make beautiful mugs yeah. in England, and you obviously can make them in China, but they're going to be different. It can work really well, or it can lose its luster. How did you find that, Kath? That's what I found very painful. And I think that's open knowledge for me. I found it very difficult on the quality and the focus like that. And I think eventually... I knew that they were right to make the business more commercial and I respected their judgment in so many ways, like how they run the warehouse, how they did their deals, really impressive people. But from a product thing, when it's very personal as a founder, it's very difficult. Mm. And I think when I came to the stage where I left around 2015, 16, I knew it wasn't for me, that I needed to kind of, I was probably more of a block to them and a hindrance than a help which isn't healthy you know it's not right to be like no. that and I felt I was being too protective either of team or products or whatever and I think it's a founder problem when a business grows I think it is a founder problem absolutely I mean it's a double side of the coin isn't it it's exactly why founders are fantastic <laughs> to protect all of those things but also it's difficult to potentially scale in the way People want to if they're concentrating on profits because actually that's not going to help them. Did you find that the journey of the building, was it exciting for you and Joe? Those years were incredibly exciting. And it was a time when lots of amazing things fell into place. I remember doing like huge charity fundraisers that really worked and we raised loads of money and you think that's an extraordinary thing. We can harness this and do exciting things like that. I remember, you know, making the first printed mobile phone and to be asked to do it at the time and the whole kind of buzz around it was so exciting. Lots of things that happened, really an extraordinary journey around that time. And then as it gets bigger and bigger, it's harder as well if I've never worked in a really huge company. And it got to a stage where I think the moment when mm. I knew I was going to leave was I went into the office one day and I was walked up to the second floor to my desk area, walked upstairs and the person who crossed the stairs didn't say hello or good morning. And we all had known each other so well. And it wasn't their fault. They probably just didn't do that. But I always said hello and good morning or whatever to everybody. We all, you know, we knew we were very friendly. And I thought, this is a different thing. It's not that kind of place anymore. And it's probably not the place to be. And so you stepped away from the business, am I right, in thinking in 2016. And the depart, how did you, well, we're going to talk about some new loves that you have created, but how did you navigate that from it being your name, it being your world, your whole massive part of your adult life? Tell me about how you navigated coming to the other side of that. I kind of knew it would happen. And when, when the bigger investors came in, I remember saying to them, just classic moment, I remember their faces, I say, well, what do you want to do with the F word, you know, meaning the founder? And they all look like, what? Well, because you know that the first thing is they think, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this person whose name is over the door? We're obviously hot potatoes, aren't we? You can see it all around. <laughs> so I remember talking to them openly and saying, you know, we need to plan and discuss this because I think that I should sort of help you on your way and step down at some stage. I knew that. 
because I knew that I wouldn't fit in long term. So it was something we discussed a lot. And then it just got to a stage where it happened, I'd say, I lasted for a long time with the first lot of main investors. And they were really good to work with, really nice team. And that I found interesting and constructive. And I learned a lot. And it was interesting to see how they dealt with everything. It was when the next round happened, I thought, this is too much. I've come far enough. Definitely time for me to go. And they had a different way of doing things to me. And I don't know that they didn't necessarily do it right or wrong. It was just different. And so I'd been thinking, imagine if I'm not at work. I've worked since I was 17, pretty much. And I thought, I could go to the cinema in the afternoon. I can go to exhibitions. I can have a garden. <laughs> All the things you think you'll do and you never really do when you don't work, I say. But I did. I spent a, the first year I didn't work. The thing I remember most was seeing so much sky. Because in an office, you don't yes. see sky. It was extraordinary. And I saw the seasons. I hadn't seen the seasons really since I was a kid. It's incredible. Absolutely amazing. I did all those sort of things I wanted to do. And then, Holly, one day I was on holiday. I was in India. I remember it really well. And we climbed up this monument and I saw this amazing red and white painted wall with flowers painted on a wall. Really beautiful. And I had this horrible feeling. I suddenly realized that the reason I love doing all those things, my traveling and exhibitions and so on, is to get ideas for work. And I thought, what mm. do I do now? This is so strange. All my reference points have changed. And it sort of almost felt pointless seeing it if I couldn't do something with it. It was a really shocking moment. I thought, this is so strange. And so I then, from that, thought, well, you know what? Print is my language. It's my DNA. And there's so many kinds of print. And I've worked with all manner of print through the years. And I'm going to create a new identity in print that I want for myself. But I just, I love all sorts of print from different eras and things. And I'm going to start getting involved in print again in my own way. So I started a very small studio and I made a portfolio with it, called it Joy Print. And not long after having done that, I've got a lovely agent and some partners from Japan contacted me and asked them to help them with print direction. And so I got a contract fairly early on that was really busy and still do some work for them. So that was great. And it just gave me this creative outlet. I didn't want a fame and fortune thing again. I just want to have a creative outlet no. to be able to do all of that. I was going to ask you about, from that point, tell me the joy of print you created. And I have to say, when you talk about that moment that you looked at that wall with flowers and you're on your travels and you're taking that moment and you don't know what to almost do with that reference point anymore. It's quite a moment, a beautiful moment when we realise that we create our businesses out of what we love and that's fantastic. But just because a business then moves on or a chapter of your company moves on, we tend to sometimes think that that's moved on as well. And that moment for you was realising that it was always in you. <laughs> the so love of right. print was always in you. You know, the business had grown out of you, but that hadn't disappeared. And I, I just wanted to stop on that moment because I think that a lot of people will resonate. Maybe something hasn't worked out in their company. They started something, it hasn't worked or whatever those sorts of things. And you think that, well, that part of my DNA has gone with it. And actually, I think what we're hearing here is that you were always that person. You were always the queen of print in your own right. And I 
I love hearing that story. Each week, I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact, but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you. Hi, my name is Sue Potter and I've been an Avon rep for nine years now. I've worked in Marks and Spencers for 36 years, but a couple of years ago, I decided I'd had enough of being tied down. So I fully focused on developing my Avon business and I literally haven't looked back since. In fact, a year gone October, I was actually able to resign from my job as I now have more than enough income through my Avon business. I have a really, really busy life with four children and three grandchildren. There's never, ever a dull moment in my house. And having my own Avon business means that I don't have to miss a minute of it. Avon allows me to get away on holidays four times a year. I absolutely love me holidays. I love to meet new people and seize opportunities I could never have imagined. When I look back, I can see how different my life is now and I absolutely love it. If anybody is thinking about joining Avon, just do it. It's totally been a life changer for me. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. So along with finding that the pattern, as I said, lives within you, you also had this yearning to get back to women in your past, in your life, that garden that you grew up in and start a brand, a beautiful botanical inspired bath and body line called Sea Athelie. Because I've just used the hand cream and I'm not a hand cream type of girl, but I have never touched anything like it. It smells glorious it feels incredible. I mean, I'm in. I'm in hook, line and sinker. Oh, I mean, what happened having set up my print studio and thinking that's what I need, just an outlet for print because that's in my DNA and I love all of that. I then began drawing. Part of the things I did in my year out when I wasn't working is I put up a greenhouse at home and I've always loved geraniums and I moved the geraniums that were packed on my windowsill up to the greenhouse. I like the scented variety, which if anyone who knows about scented pelagoniums, they have extraordinary fragrance. And so, of course, having all these lovely plants and flowers around me, I began bringing them into the studio and drawing and designing from them, making prints and so on for my clients. And then I had some very, very old friends, Leslie and Dennis Aronson, who have a beautiful skincare manufacturing company, and they make different labels, skincare. And I talked to them about all the incredible fragrances. You know, geraniums, you have some like rose geranium, lemon geranium, cedar geranium, all different fragrances. And I said, you know, it'd be amazing. You ought to do something with these 
extraordinary plants. And they were like, but why don't you do something with us? Let's think about, you know, how that would all work. And so I began thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a brand again and to think about what the logo looks like, how you do the packaging, what the values Mm. of the brand are, all of that. And so from not just loving print, it's loving playing shop. You know, there I was, this kid playing shop and everything. And sort of back to all of that. So I really felt inspired to start something else again. But I obviously wanted to do something completely different and fresh that was you know, respecting my old business, but giving me the space to do something I really love. And I wanted to do something very simple, solely around one kind of thing that I could really do thoroughly and completely. And so over the last, it's taken us about two and a half years, we've managed to source all these wonderful manufacturers here in the UK, get the fragrance created and done here all done obviously now starting something I wanted to be sustainable of the highest quality and everything and so it's been amazing see Athalie we launched it very quietly in sort of middle of March with a pop-up shop which was really fun up at Pentrethan Hall if anyone knows their beautiful shop up in Fitzrovia and now we've got the website up and running more pop-ups to follow and so on and stockists and things coming on board at the moment. And it's so exciting to be able to start something from fresh, really sort of take time and enjoy creating every single detail. So when you say you love the fragrance, you love the way the hand cream is, the packaging, you know, we've spent so much time trying to make this the very best. I can tell. And I'm just so thrilled. You know, it's so thrilling. And I'm really proud to do something completely new. Yeah, I can only imagine. You can tell the quality of the mind behind it because actually these sort of things, um, you could tell that it's been born out of something very personal to you. And I know it's named after your maternal grandmother. Is that right? That's right. The Athelie, the name died out in my granny's generation. And my brother's second name is Athelie, my nephew. It's a kind of name that's hidden in our family. And I really wanted to celebrate the women, the sort of that side, having had a Kidston business. Now I want one of the women, you know, the athlete side. And it's not a name that's used, so I don't feel like I'm doing the sort of thing of using my own name as such again. Not that I could, but you know, it's nice. Yes. And I just am really proud of that side of the family. So it's really nice to bring them in. So I know you've worked since you were 17. Yeah. And... I'm right in thinking that you're about 64 now. That is a long time creating, but I'm so happy that you're doing it all again, that you are a founder at 64. Kath Kidston, I mean, just for anyone out there, I started my business, my Curtinalia business, when I was 29. And then I started Kath Kidston when I was 34. So for a lot of people, that feels quite old if you're young and thinking you're starting your business. So I was always a bit sort of timid about starting out. And now I feel a real champion of people of my age. You know, at 64, I definitely am not ready to, I don't want to work as hard as I worked those kind of crazy years of the beginning of Kath Kidston. I wouldn't manage that. But I do want to be completely involved and I thrive on the energy of it all. I absolutely love it. And I don't see why age really relates. It's like I have friends whose children are really young when they start things up and they're absolutely brilliant, like their early 20s. So I think that 
we should be open to sort of not worrying about age with this sort of stuff at all, don't you? Oh, I just couldn't agree more. I mean, I was interviewing Bobby Brown, who's obviously created Jones Road, and she launched when she turned 60. And I think about how people ask me about retirement. I'm like, I'll never retire. As long as I'm doing what I love, I want to live. And you do wonder this sort of, if is retirement quite an outdated concept, ultimately? As you said, you don't want to work as hard as you did, but you've got so much to give. You've got all the wisdom. Now you're pouring it into a new venture. It's going to bring curiosity and excitement, isn't it, to your life? Why mm. wouldn't you welcome that in? And I think it's it's something that we really need to potentially rewire and think about. And I think for us, you're a role model in the fact that for women like myself, I definitely hope I'm working hard when I'm 64, doing what I love, bringing newness to consumers. And you can tell in everything that I've touched with your new brand, there is just this experience in there from the logo to the beautiful drawing on the packaging. I read the ingredients. It felt so pure, 100% natural, British made. The smell was exquisite. And you can just tell, this is someone who's been here before. I mean, I would say though, having, yes, I have have been around the block, as they say. But actually, one of the things that I've really loved with the business is it brings me in close touch with much younger people. The girls who work Mm. in the studio are half my age. I think their parents are younger than me. And then the team who are involved are all different ages. And isn't it a wonderful thing when you get different generations together working? I think for Mm. me it's great. I'm probably a bit like, probably quite frustrating for them when I take ages to work something on the computer or whatever it is. But I love that cross-generational. I think it's great for everybody. Just nice. You know, if I have a party at home, it's all ages. It's not necessarily... You know, has some people, I'm one of those people who love, love hanging out with all different ages. And what's your dreams, Kath, for this business? I think to retain its integrity that we started out with as it grows. Does that sound odd? I mean, I obviously want it to do well. No. And I want it to thrive. But I think that we sustain and keep the values that we've really set out to build on. And we keep those building blocks in place. That's a very difficult thing to do as a business grows. And I just want to make sure it stays absolutely as we've set out to do. Well, it's a challenge, but it's one that, as you said, you've been around the block. You've built something that has given you so many lessons that none of us have seen. And I'm positive you can do that. Kath, it's been such a beautiful conversation with you. And I have loved every moment of it. Tell me, at the end of this interview, I normally use the analogy that running your business is often like being on an epic roller coaster. Can I ask you what you would say has been one of your lowest lows when you've been in your business world? I think it's a very tricky question that, but I would think moments when I thought the brand wasn't being true to itself would have been the hardest Mm -hmm. time when something gets bigger and you think it doesn't feel right. You know, that kind of feeling has probably been a low. And did you feel you weren't in control to change that? I wasn't. I wouldn't have been at that Mm. time. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why with this new company, it's not about control. It's about protecting, I think. There is a certain control in that, isn't it? 
but it's feeling yes. very protective of something. If you can't be protective, then it's probably just like a child. You know, you don't want danger for your child, do you? Absolutely. I totally and utterly empathize and understand that. Tell me on your high, what would it be on that roller coaster when you're at the peak? What was your moment? I think the moment I remember the most was I'd been really struggling to build the brand and being really careful about kind of keeping it focused, I hoped, and trying to make it recognisable. And one day I read in the paper, I was reading the Times, and it described something as being very Kath Kidston. And I was like, (laughs) I can't believe I've just read that. That's extraordinary. And that was like this, whoa, that's amazing. I had no idea that that's how that would happen. Well, you built something that became part of culture. It's hard for me to say that, but that particular thing when I read that was great. Yeah, it's amazing. Kath, I know that you have prepared a letter to your younger self and I think of that younger self with her cut out leaves as coins and in her shop. And I'm wondering if you would do the honour of reading it to us. Okay. Now here's where you'll hear that my reading aloud skills are a little dodgy, okay? So I'm going to give it a go. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't even think about that. I'm sorry I'm asking you to do the one thing that you've just said you do not like doing. The good thing with age is you don't take yourself so seriously. Here you go, everybody. Okay, it's a letter to my younger self. It may sound odd, but the idea of writing a letter to my younger self feels very unnatural to me. My life has had a wonderful knack of unfolding in surprising ways, and I've tended to learn most things as I went along, and usually from my own mistakes. If I'd been given advice, I imagine I would have been offered plenty of caution, and I was helped when I set up in business by being fueled by my own rather naive, blind optimism. I knew the risks I was prepared to take at various junctures of my life. Fate often intervened and I was able to fathom things out given my circumstances at each stage. So much reward has come from this. So it may sound trite, but what I would say to myself is simply wait and see. You'll work it out for yourself as you go along and to take a risk and try is always better than not trying at all. So there you go. Oh, Kath, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom. And can I just say, you read that beautifully. You have been so wonderful in sharing all of your story with us. There's so much that we're going to be taking away from that. And absolutely, we wish you everything in your new venture. And I cannot wait to see. I can already see it everywhere, by the way. Uh It was such a lovely experience. You're such a lovely woman. You have given us all so much. And we need role models like yourself. We need strong women who are building fantastic brands out there. And we're right behind you. Oh, Holly, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's lovely chatting to you again. Oh, it's absolutely lovely. Thank you so, so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 